You're listening to the Politics and Pedagogy Podcast. Happy New Year to everyone listening to this, the proper debut of the Politics and Pedagogy podcast. I'm Luke Campbell. I run a blog for my website at www.politicsandpedagogy.com. This podcast is intended to be a easy-to-reach direct way of sharing news and interviews with and from researchers, uh, academics, activists and participants in contemporary education, politics and sociology. It'll also be touching on how these relate to criminology, social work and support work. I'm going to be including uh, blog posts in audio format, most of which focus on my work in North Edinburgh or my studies on the MSc Education uh, course at the University of Edinburgh. Though these uh, will also be including uh, feedback from Twitter, Facebook and email, as well as any comments from over on the website itself. Just to give a a quick rundown of um, what's going to be happening in the immediate future for this podcast, Uh, I currently have no intentions of live streaming uh, the podcast, however, forthcoming episodes are going to be including uh, recordings of live events, seminars and lectures. The best way for you to to keep in touch is therefore going to be over on Twitter by following me on at TrainUpTheSwing or by subscribing to the Politics and Pedagogy podcast feeds on both iTunes and Podbean. Uh, In each case, I'm going to be holding off on publishing episodes until I have the express permission from the speaker, and in some cases the event organisers as well, uh, prior to releasing these episodes. Um, Thankfully, this afternoon I received an immediate uh, reply from one of these speakers, uh, Bruce Western, who's given me the go-ahead, and hence today's debut episode. In other news, some of you will be aware I've been awarded 250 quid through the University of Edinburgh to run an event entitled Violent Austerity and Community, which is going to be taking place in February, and I'll be updating you through the podcast and Twitter as this comes closer. Uh, I've got two speakers confirmed thus far, uh, Debbie Fry from the University of Edinburgh and Brad Evans, uh, University of Bristol. Now on to today's episode. Uh, today's podcast features a talk given by Harvard University's Bruce Western entitled Incarceration as Social Policy in the United States. Uh, I recorded this uh, this talk at the two-day conference on tracing the relationship between inequality, crime and punishment, space, time and politics, which took place at the British Academy in London on the 7th and 8th of December 2017. Bush discusses some of his experiences uh, conducting research interviews in Boston on the aforementioned topic with a number of local people. He considers racial inequality, uh, poverty, crime and social justice, Uh, offering insight into the relationship between social elements uh, and criminality in in terms of US policy. He touches on drug histories, social relationships and the educational backgrounds of many of these individuals and the talk's quite exciting and features features some of the interviews, uh, video content of these interviews that Bruce had conducted. Um, Yeah, so that's that's it from me. Uh, The audio gets a little bit quiet at times particularly when it comes to towards the end of the session. Um, so just listen out for that and adjust your volume settings. Please give Bruce a follow on Twitter using at Western Bruce, so just his name backwards. And if you would like to give me a follow as well, please search for Chain Up The Swings. Just a uh, wee Michael Mara reference to end with for today. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this uh, this talk from Bruce Western.
So uh, the chapter that I'm going to talk about is the final chapter of the book. And uh, what I'm uh, trying to do here is uh, speak about some of the main empirical themes of the research, uh, but I'm also going to try and uh, speak about policy and politics and what I hope are the implications of the research for how we should think about justice policy in America, which I think, uh, I hope, uh, may be entering a period of reform in which we can uh, retreat from mass incarceration and do something different. And what that something different is, uh, I think, uh, remains a largely uh, open question uh, for, for policy makers. And uh, this is uh, my effort to sort of uh, chip in uh, on that debate and uh, uh, try and suggest some directions in, in which we might move. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit. I'm, uh, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, the chapter. Uh, Aman was raised by his mother in a poor African-American section of Dorchester. He was stabbed uh, three different times during his teenage years, and by the onset of his schizophrenia, he had accumulated a long list of juvenile convictions. Eddie was an army veteran, and he'd been a crack addict for most of his adult life. And he worked periodically, but in the year after incarceration, he lived mostly off his veterans' benefits and street stamps. Patrick's mother was a heroin addict who died of AIDS when he was 17. A heroin user himself, Patrick had been a witness uh, and a victim of serious violence since early childhood. Carla was also a heavy drug user whose life was suffused in violence. Before she went to prison, she made a living by prostitution, selling drugs, and a government disability check for a bad back uh, that she injured in a prison brawl. Junie was abandoned by his father and raised by his mother, left school at 16, completed his GD in prison, Junie's parole was revoked when his brother got arrested and called him to the scene to help out. Celia was raised by her mother, who fled an abusive husband who battered her for years. Celia periodically lived with her grandmother, uh, but she left home for good at age 17. Like her own mother, Celia was a victim of domestic violence, and as a young parent of 20, uh, she made her living as a drug dealer. Peter uh, grew up in the housing projects of Roxbury uh, to a mother who was addicted to drugs and an abusive father. He was a runaway from the age of 11. At 14, his head was split open with a crowbar in racial brawl, and from the age of 17, he spent more than half his life uh, in prison. So I think, you know, to understand what we should do about uh, justice uh, in America, uh, from my perspective as a sociologist, it's important that we first understand the world, the social world, in which the criminal justice system is currently operating. And uh, for me, the, the social world uh, of incarceration has three fundamental characteristics. It's rich in racial inequality, uh, poverty, and violence. And uh, this is a, a social reality that we really have to grapple with uh, as we think about policy alternatives. Uh, 
there is a new racial inequality, and it, it, it's much more than just racial disparities uh, in incarceration. Uh, uh, blacks and whites go to prison uh, for different kinds of reasons. They have different kinds of biographies. Uh, the broader social effects of incarceration uh, are larger uh, for uh, minority communities uh, than for whites uh, because uh, the, uh, uh, the young men that are incarcerated in minority communities are much more socially integrated uh, uh, in, into their family and uh, community life. Okay, that's race. Poverty. So as, uh, as much as racial inequality, extreme poverty was very, very common uh, in the reentry study uh, sample. Uh, most of the people that we talked to had grown up poor in poor neighbourhoods and after incarceration, incomes were uh, very low, well below poverty levels. The average income in the sample in the year after prison uh, was about $6,000 and uh, that's about... Uh, Half of the federal poverty line uh, for a person uh, for a person living uh, alone. Uh, steady income was only produced by government support, which is uh, mostly food stamps, which is a, uh, uh, the really the only remaining cash transfer program, uh, federal cash transfer program uh, left in the United States. And in our sample, it paid about two hundred dollars a month. Um, so steady income was only produced by government support and respondents only kept their heads above water with help from family. Uh, income poverty for people who have been to prison is only one marker uh, of the greater challenge of what I uh, am calling in the book uh, correlated adversity. So multiple disadvantages, uh, untreated mental illness, addiction, uh, poor physical health, housing insecurity, uh, they all accompany the conditions of poverty that uh, we observe, and they accumulate among people who are involved in the criminal justice system. Two-thirds of the people that we interviewed had history of mental illness or addiction to drugs or alcohol. Uh, depression was common, nearly universal among all the women that we spoke to. Uh, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder uh, were also definitely <coughs> reported. 20% of the respondents used heroin or cocaine, in the year after prison release, and about half of those with histories of addiction uh, relapsed to drug use. Uh, most of the regular users were children of addicts, and uh, relapse to addiction was the single biggest predictor of return to incarceration. <clears throat> A lifetime of poorly treated addiction and mental illness under conditions of social and economic insecurity took a physical toll. Uh, the entry study sample lived with chronic disease, uh, things like uh, diabetes, hepatitis, uh, and another third reported chronic pain that was often related to accidents, fights, or heavy drug use. So poverty, yes. Very low incomes, yes. But uh, accompanied by uh, uh, correlated adversity, sort of frailties of the mind and, and body. Third thing, violence. Uh, and this is, uh, has been a very interesting theme uh, throughout our uh, discussions. By the time we interviewed the men and women of Boston who were leaving prison, they had survived uh, abusive childhood homes that grown up uh, through teenage years that were filled with fighting. Everyone talked to us about 
uh, fighting in adolescence. Uh, they'd gotten stabbed and shot, uh, and they'd delivered their own share of violence too. Researchers claim that the prison has an incapacitating effect, right? Reducing violence by removing it from society. But this assumes, of course, that prisons themselves are safe and secure and uh, need not count in statistics on violent crime. Uh, the, the respondents reported to us that the prison was tense with the possibility of beatings, stabbings, and retaliation. Fighting was common in some facilities and barely contained by prison staff. So violence is a lifetime reality uh, for people who go to prison. Uh, grows out of chaotic contexts of poverty and its accompanying disadvantages. So uh, violence, in the way I'm thinking about it, is very, very contextual. It's not dispositional, as, uh, uh, as it's often described in, uh, in crime talk, but it's very closely related uh, to the, uh, the social conditions of poverty in which In the world of incarceration, where there is order, it emerges less from the informal bonds of community than through the coercion of the group home, the county jail, uh, and the state prison. Uh, let me show you, I want to show you a little clip of an interview uh, from one of the respondents I was speaking to. This is a guy called Peter, he's uh, an older guy, he's talking in this clip about violence. Person. I thought the only person who was the, the fear of me was my father. When I went to prison, I found out my father wasn't shit. He was scared of me. I stabbed four people in one day. I didn't care. I didn't care. I was at, I didn't care. How old were you? 19, 20. Yeah. What happened after that? I went to the hole. Went to the hole and that's when they sent me up the wall. You know? But, yeah. And, and from there, it was just uphill. Nothing but violence. Yeah. Violence. But I was never like that. I thought that I can go to jail and just stay to myself, do my time, and get out. Nope. So, uh, uh, Growing up, he was uh, uh, he, he was uh, beaten up a lot uh, as a kid. He, he got involved in racial brawls. He was grew, growing up through a period of intense racial conflict uh, in Boston, and uh, he was the guy that uh, got his uh, head split open uh, with uh, with a crowbar. And and uh, I think. And one of the main implications of the contextual character of uh, violence in, uh, in this research site is that people who are involved in violent offending have very, very significant histories of violent victimization themselves and uh, have been witnesses to violence uh, over a lifetime uh, as well. And uh, for me, this uh, uh, really muddies the... Uh, uh, our ethical assessment uh, uh, of uh, culpability, and I think it's something we have to grapple with in the, uh, the policy debate. Okay.
so that's sort of empirical prep and preparation. Now I'm going to sort of pivot to how should we think about justice in this setting and uh, how should we think about uh, what uh, alternatives uh, to uh, criminal justice policy uh, might, might look like. And uh, the way I sort of got into this in, in the book chapter is, uh, uh, you know, trying to th think about why mass incarceration failed as a crime control uh, project. And, and here I'm, the, sort of the bedrock assumption uh, comes from uh, the National Academy of Sciences report in which we found that uh, the crime reducing effects of very high rates of incarceration is very, very small. And so massive investment, right? The United States is spending $80 million uh, a year on its prisons. It's spending uh, more on prisons, right, than food stamps, which is the, uh, the main cash transfer uh, anti-poverty program uh, in the United States. So what, you know, why, why was the uh, effect uh, so small? And, uh, and at some abstract level, I think, the, 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 the policy philosophy that was driving uh, mass incarceration really had very little understanding of the social conditions in which uh, uh, the problem of violence uh, uh, was emerging. And uh, uh, theories of retribution, incapacitation, and deterrence uh, took no account of this uh, very uh, uh, complicated uh, social reality, and in fact, uh, the policy wound up hardening lines of social exclusion, uh, uh, which itself, I think, uh, became criminogenic uh, uh, to some degree, and certainly uh, uh, set back efforts, uh, uh, particularly to uh, incorporate Americans more fully into uh, the citizenship uh, of American society. And so uh, the, the big policy question I think uh, uh, we need to answer as we think about justice reform in America is in this world where social conditions of inequality are uh, uh, ripe with violence uh, in uh, very disadvantaged communities, the question uh, we have to find an answer to is how can we promote justice? people who are harmed. And, uh, and that counts a lot of people. That counts uh, people who we normally think of uh, as victims, uh, but it uh, uh, also counts uh, people uh, who we normally think of uh, as offenders as well. Um, so one, one answer to this question uh, has been proposed by Mike Tomrey. And, uh, and uh, Michael has this idea of uh, what he calls social adversity mitigation. And uh, uh, Tomri argues that the harsh social conditions uh, that many defendants grew up uh, with forms part of the, uh, part of the context of criminal uh, offending. And uh, the re-entry study, I think, richly demonstrates Tomri's argument, well beyond poverty, Conditions of social adversity include uh, family chaos in childhood, untreated addiction, mental illness, homelessness, chronic pain and disease. All these parts of a defendant's biography 
are typically excluded from assessments of guilt uh, or innocence, um, uh, and, and they're typically excluded from sentencing. And Tomrey argues that these conditions of social adversity uh, should be considered as part of the causes of crime. And crimes aren't simply failures to resist temptation as theories of rehabilitation and, and deterrence often claim. Instead, crimes are what he calls uh, often the result uh, from the regrettable but understandable choices of people whose lives prevent, uh, present few positive options and who are subject to uh, extraordinary stress. Uh, that's, uh, that's what, uh, uh, what uh, 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 Tomrey says. And these contexts uh, should influence our assessments of uh, culpability. Uh, so this is a response to the idea that if you do the crime, you do the time. And such tough-minded philosophy, Tomrey says, ignores and lacks empathy for the complex circumstances of the lives of deeply disadvantaged uh, people. Uh, proponents of the social disadvantaged defense or sentence mitigation, and that's really uh, Michael's proposal, that sentences be mitigated uh, given evidence of uh, social adversity. Uh, uh, proponents of a social uh, uh, disadvantage defence or sentence mitigation are responding to that deficiency by uh, searching for a better solution. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the, uh, so social adversity uh, mitigation helps express our instincts of uh, compassion and leniency, uh, but I think we can do more. Uh, I think we can open the window uh, a little bit wider. And uh, I think that involves asking, why did pervasive incarceration fail to greatly reduce crime? And uh, the answer from a sociological perspective, and I think uh, David was going in this direction uh, yesterday morning, public safety isn't mostly produced by police, uh, courts, and the threat of punishment. Instead, it's produced by a raft of social institutions, like families and schools and employers and, and churches and neighborhood groups. Uh, and the bonds of community. And these are the institutions that help regularize social life and promote daily routine. Uh, social institutions activate the attentions of neighbors, co-workers, uh, spouses, teachers, employers, who monitor conduct and standards and normative reminder uh, of order. Uh, the social institutions are age graded uh, as children grow into adolescence and adulthood. Uh, they're socialised into the roles of spouse, worker, and citizen, and all of this helps maintain regularity, routine, uh, and routine in daily life. And for all of that story of what public safety might look like, we don't really need the institutions uh, uh, of punishment. Uh, I want to illustrate this idea. I'm, I'm going to run out of time.
I'm getting the same feeling going to work every day, and now I'm saying I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing it the right way. So it felt good going to work and me talk, speaking to people and giving them encouragement when they, when they come to work and they ain't having a good day or things is going on in their life, and I can give them some advice, you know, or I can tell them something to help them get through the day. That made me feel good, or I can teach them something. I can teach them something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I know that they depend on me. When I left that program, they missed me. And my boss told me, he still emailed me and called me now, like, you know, a lot of guys, they, they always ask me about you. How are you doing? How are you doing? So it's good to leave that effect on people when I leave. And I know that they get a lot from me. And I get something from that too. That's that's like that's that's like that's my gift that I give to people. And like I said, I get rewarded for that. Yeah. I get rewarded for that. I get a good feeling. That helps me. That helps me. That's my therapy. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's talking about employment there, and uh, employment, uh, of course, uh, uh, a lot of people have argued is. Uh, As a kid, I thought my father was the toughest person. I thought the only person who was. Um, and uh, so, you know, an empl employment is an important source of criminal assistance, and, and criminologists uh, uh, have uh, talked about that, and that would be an important reason to uh, try and promote uh, employment among people who are at, uh, at risk of incarceration. But I think he's also, uh, Peter's also talking about uh, uh, the social effects uh, of employment, the effects of, uh, in the positive effects of his own employment uh, on, uh, on, those, uh, on those around him, uh, and his own sense of self-worth and, uh, and pride, not only is it improving his material circumstances, uh, uh, but uh, it's uh, affecting his sense of self. And, uh, identity as well. And uh, I think there's an alternative idea of public safety in, uh, in what Peter's saying and how we think about uh, uh, the, uh, all of the sources of informal social control uh, in making communities safe. And I think about this as kind of a thick, a thick kind of public safety in which people gain uh, order and predictability in their daily life. And they're not just free of bodily threats, uh, but they're materially secure in their housing and their intimate relationships and their livelihoods. And so this thick public safety, uh, I think, lengthens people's time horizons. And it uh, allows them to imagine a future for themselves. Uh, and it gives them a place in which it makes sense to uh, invest in themselves uh, and their children. And I think this thick idea of public safety uh, contrasts with political talk about crime, in which I think we have a very thin idea of public safety. And, and this thin idea of public safety is threatened by strangers engaged in street crime. And for pundits and policymakers who conjure up these shadowy street criminals, protection is really only offered uh, by deterrent incapacitated force uh, of punishment. Uh, so I think that this is sort of uh, uh, the alternative vision of public safety uh, that we should be uh, talking about.
sort of mindful of time, of, so I'm going to skip ahead. Um, so uh, what will uh, what will these uh, reimagined uh, justice institutions look like that can promote this uh, uh, thick, uh, thick public safety? Um, so you know, part, partly uh, it will involve recognizing uh, histories of victimization and trauma for people who come into conflict uh, with the law. Uh, partly it will uh, attend to, uh, partly it will involve attending to the harms uh, that victims have suffered and attending to them directly and deliberately. Uh, for all of the talk uh, in uh, the political project of mass incarceration about victims, there's remarkably little uh, that's actually done uh, for the victims uh, of crime. Uh, except through this sort of convoluted conceit uh, of uh, harsh punishment. Mostly, however, though, a reimagined criminal justice system is going to have to concede some jurisdiction uh, over uh, the policy task of public safety to other kinds of agencies, non-criminal justice agencies, like what? Like departments of housing, child services, public health, uh, education, labour. Uh, the reentry study indicates there are three real uh, important areas of need if we think about the reentry area uh, specifically. Uh, for those coming out of prison, uh, there's an urgent need for transitional support. So, in uh, the first weeks or so after you make the transition from the institution back to the community. Uh, second, uh, continuity of medical and mental health care. Uh, after incarceration is tremendously important because the health status of the population uh, is so poor that uh, people are oftentimes getting some care in prison and then they transition to a, session, uh, a uh, context in which they're uh, uh, often getting very little care. And the third big need is uh, housing. Uh, there was virtually no independent uh, housing uh, at all in the reentry. Uh, study sample. And attending to the housing problem uh, in part means improving the availability of transitional housing. But what it really means, I think, uh, is helping support the families who are providing most of the uh, housing to people coming uh, out of prison. And the people who are providing this housing is mostly older women. Uh, it's mostly uh, mothers, older sisters, aunts and uh, grandmothers. There's an enormous social cost uh, of mass incarceration on uh, older women in disadvantaged communities, which I think has largely been uh, unregistered. And I think something like uh, a returning citizens tax credit uh, for people uh, who were uh, supporting adults after institutionalization, you could imagine such a tax credit uh, also for vets, uh, the families of veterans uh, uh, who are coming home. I've got, uh, Sapo tells me I've got one minute. Uh, I want to get in, I want to play a uh, final video uh, and get, squeeze in one last idea.
get him a suit to go to his brother's funeral and I called, my mother called me because she had found out what happened. And um, I cried all the way to New York. My son was in the back seat sleeping. I could see that he was, he was going through it mentally. He was going through it mentally and I cried, I cried. And I asked my mother, I told my mother, I said, Mom, if I, if I change my life, will he take care of us? She was like, who? And I was like, Papa, I changed my life. Is he shake hands? And she was like, yeah. She said, yeah, just trust and believe. We'll take care of him. So I made a decision to change my life. He's taking care of us.
uh, made for reparations in relation to the historic injustice of Jim Crow by Tanahasi Coates, uh, who traced the specific cases of the expropriation of property by whites from black landowners. And later when uh, he was writing about mass incarceration, uh, Coates asked if uh, reparations were all also due in this case. Uh, but many other approaches have also been taken to uh, challenges of historic and collective injustice. Post-colonial societies uh, established special courts for war crimes. There have been truth and reconciliation, commissions, official apologies, museums, monuments, cultural events, new school curricula, uh, opening secret files uh, to public access. All of these things have been used to acknowledge the collective injuries uh, that have been suffered uh, by uh, entire communities. Uh, some societies uh, have adopted small rituals, uh, recognizing historic injustices against indigenous people uh, as part of the etiquette of daily life. So if you go to uh, a public meeting at a university in Australia, uh, these often begin with a welcome to country uh, that acknowledges the traditional uh, owners of the land or the, or the traditional indigenous occupants uh, who were displaced by white settlement. Other efforts have emerged in post-conflict societies where tribal or colonial divisions clearly mark the perpetrators and victims. Uh, Martha Minow, uh, uh, the law school at Harvard, writes about this and she catalogues all of these different examples uh, of ways of responding uh, to mass violence. And she says, these alternatives all share one feature. They depart from doing nothing. And in case this sounds uh, fanciful, um, the idea of reparations or official apology or uh, something. In 2016, the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police uh, apologized for the role of police in uh, uh, its, uh, uh, its relationship uh, uh, to citizens and communities of color. He says, there are times when law enforcement officers have been the face of oppression uh, for far too many of our uh, fellow citizens, and, uh, uh, and he apologized. So I'm going to, I have more to say, and I'm going to wrap up. And the last thing uh, I'm going to say is that redressing uh, the historic injustice of mass incarceration uh, does more, I think, than settle accounts with the past. It's not just symbolic. Uh, police judges and penal officials who acknowledge historic harms, uh, I think can begin to heal relationships and build trust uh, with disadvantaged communities. But those efforts uh, will feel very hollow unless there's also real change uh, in policy. And under the harsh conditions of American poverty, the antidote to violence isn't more punishment, uh, but restoring the institutions to social bonds and well-being that enable order and predictability in daily life. That's his Think public safety. And I hope that by recognizing historic harms, uh, that will slow down our reflex uh, to punish. And, uh, and instead, we'll encourage socially integrated responses to crime. And then criminal justice could contribute to thick public safety that allows even the poorest to live day to day with an eye on their future and the future of their kids.
Thank you, and uh, thank you, Bruce, very much for getting uh, uh, extremely important, I think, presentation. And I really look forward to reading uh, your book. And especially thank you for having talked about the issue of criminal justice, taking it seriously. You know, as if this were something serious to consider politically and philosophically, not just uh, as criminologists. Sense. But uh, the question that was uh, running through my mind while you were talking, uh, thinking about uh, you know what you said, for instance, about uh, <clears throat> the position by Michael Tomlin and the way in, in which you developed that, isn't it carrying us in the direction of asking the question about individual responsibility, which is, after all, the basic milestone of all criminal justice systems. Yeah. I mean, isn't asking the question of you know, whether we should start thinking in terms of some kind of collective or maybe shared responsibility yeah, instead of you know shifting all the burden uh, on the person who is described as the offender. Um, would you like us to take a few questions, or are you happy to do it one by one? Um, I think I know how I want to respond, and I'm worried that it will be difficult for me to retain the vote. So uh, let me uh, quickly respond to Dario. And I think that's I, I think that's a, a great way to formulate uh, the question. And I I think there has to be some balancing uh, of. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's unrealistic to think uh, there could ever be uh, in public policy an abandonment of an idea of, uh, uh, of individual uh, responsibility. And uh, I think as a matter of policy, we probably wouldn't want that anyway. I think it's, it is restorative, it is socially integrated uh, uh, for people to acknowledge harm. Uh, when they uh, uh, when they hurt other people, and I think our response uh, to people who hurt other people can't only be we're going to uh, uh, shower you with social services. That uh, that can't be our only response, and um, it it's not and it shouldn't be uh, even remotely politically uh, feasible. So I think we have to uh, we have to balance uh, an idea that people should acknowledge harm, and there's a real uh, a real uh, purpose uh, served by that. Uh, and yet, at the same time, uh, uh, in many cases, uh, they've uh, grown up with all sorts of adversity uh, themselves, and, and uh, supporting people. Uh, find their place in society uh, after they've come into conflict uh, with it, uh, that's part of our responsibility for them. And, uh, and uh, so, if, yeah, I think uh, the, the solution that I'm proposing uh, uh, is that we do both. We have to take some shared responsibility as a society for people who uh, come into conflict with the law, but we can't abandon uh, entirely responsibility for someone to acknowledge harm. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Professor Hoffman, for the book and to assigning it to my students. Um, uh, so this is actually, I think, related. Um, I, I, I liked here the phrase you used, um, socially integrated versus punitive responses to violence. And I, I think that's absolutely spot on. I, 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 I endorse that. But I, I, I wonder uh, if there's a sort of mid-range or intermediary theory of policing and, and imprisonment that we need to confront the real harm that some people are inflicting on communities Despite, we, we can acknowledge their, their own um, experiences and their, their own causes of that, but I'm just thinking about the, the many, many hours I spent in community meetings um, from the sort of mid-90s to the mid-2000s um, in high crime areas, and I, I think a lot of people's responses would be, yeah, it's, you know, he's had a rough life, but meanwhile, I can't go get a carton of milk because I'm, you know, every time I see him, I'm afraid of something happening. So don't we need something that helps us um, uh, calculate, you know, what to do with that individual and maybe what kind of policing and what kind of tools like imprisonment we want to use when somebody is um, re-damaging the, the, the community that, that perhaps, you know, was part of which would damage them, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think uh, uh, as a matter of public policy, there are two distinct questions. Uh, uh, one is about uh, prevention and uh, the other is about how do you respond to uh, uh, to violence after it's uh, occurred. And I think the, the answers and the instruments we use for, uh, for both of those uh, problems are slightly different, though they should work in an integrated way and, and uh, not, a, not across purposes. And our overarching uh, test of uh, uh, criminal justice policy should be social uh, integration, right? Because there, there's a model of public safety here that we're uh, that we're trying to support. That's of this very big kind. There are people who are inclined to harm uh, themselves uh, and others, and they pose uh, an enormous uh, 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 an enormous challenge for uh, for, for, uh, for societies. And uh, I think there is a uh, a role for incarceration of some kind, whether it looks like our prisons as they're uh, currently uh, configured, uh, uh, I think probably not, right? I mean, you know, our prisons and jails in particular are delivering so much uh, uh, healthcare and mental health services, uh, they're serving as sort of a, a surrogate homeless system, uh, for a lot of people, uh, uh, for people like that who are in custodial settings, uh, you know, they, the settings that they should be in uh, should look more, uh, more clinical, uh, I think. But I, I think you're right that this isn't an argument for abolition at all. Okay, we have only eight minutes left before we're supposed to be going for lunch, so let's try and... Okay, we should go. Okay, yeah, there was a question over here. Hi, thanks. That was really interesting. Um, and in the um, Essex, Brentsy, and Carnegie, you perhaps might be out of this as a yes or no, but maybe that would be so interesting. Um, but you spoke, in terms of the biographies, you spoke about mental health, about family bereavement, domestic, um, racial violence, and those kinds of things. And, and from, from my, my research, I just wondered really, in terms of the biographies you heard, whether or not any of the people that you interviewed and, and followed 
had kind of like multiple exclusions from the tool and then that went on to um, transpire in their, in their biographies and their lives. And I ask that because um, my research around the autistic spectrum, attention deficit, um, and learning difficulty, and we have a lot of that in the UK in prisons. I don't know the stats in the USA, but um, I just wondered about that because you did say that they were mainly high school graduates. So I wondered where are the people that perhaps are struggling with social norms, social cues? Because in my research, there um, one uh, family I interviewed, and multiple interviews, life story interviews, and then they went into um, and I interviewed the lab 22 year old who's been in and out of. Um, pupil referral units and schools. Um, he's since interviewed and gone back inside twice. In the we last might, we six might have to cut it short, sorry, just because we've got that. Yeah, that. yeah. so were there, were there those stories that were coming out as well? Yes. School failure is uh, like uh, epidemic. Even uh, so, uh, race high school graduation uh, was uh, higher among the, uh, the whites than the blacks, but uh, histories of suspension and uh, you know kids getting their school education in institutional settings like department and services and so on. Is that in the yeah. building, yes? Yes, yeah. and it's very similar to your experience. Great. Lots of learning problems, reading yeah. problems. And, okay. Yeah. okay, we have a question from Greta then. Thank you. Um, I'm just interested uh, in the degree to which um, there is any political viability for acknowledging historical harms because it seems to me, given the backlash against affirmative action, it's um, impossible to think about any kind of acknowledgement. And given the sort of racist context in America, segregation, etc., etc., there's no capacity for that to be even a realistic policy objective. I, I, I disagree. <laughs> I, I think. Um, uh, so, uh, Cunningham, the, uh, the president of the IACP, is the uh, chief of police association. Uh, uh, he's making this apology to uh, communities of uh, communities of colour. It's pretty narrowly circumscribed. He was only talking about historic harms, not uh, contemporary harms. But, uh, and he's doing that uh, because of Black Lives Matter. And uh, 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 social mobilisation, I think, has created a conversation uh, among uh, police chiefs about uh, an idea of national reconciliation. And there are, uh, uh, there are initiatives for that, and uh, chiefs are, uh, are experimenting with apology. That's how they're doing it at the moment. But I think the, uh, the space of possible instruments for doing this is much, much broader than these apologies, which sometimes don't work out well, and sometimes are hand-fisted and so on. And uh, <laughs> so I think there is, uh, I think it, it, it is realistic. Okay, thank you, Vanessa. Thank you, um, thank you very much. Um, do you think, to what extent does this hinge uh, on empathy? Because you present the harms, which I am sympathetic to, but it's a creating a portrait of broken people. And if we only understand all those harms, then we will provide justice. So it hinges on that we have empathy towards others. And then also, I wonder to the extent, does it diminish equality, seeing the subjectivity or the agency of people who are subjected to this? So does it diminish their actual, on, on the same par, that they're broken, 
and then we need to fix that in the society that created that. But what happens to their political equality as exercising rights? And I was actually thinking about versus um, a demand in some way for um, repair. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it does hinge on empathy. Uh, and I think, uh, so I didn't want to do too much showing. Uh, I want to be shown, not telling in, in this talk, but uh, uh, I, so I think uh, you know, the, the political project of mass incarceration is very, very dehumanizing. And it's uh, 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 social solidarity. So showing the video clips is uh,